Well, thank you again for being here today. Uh, I am not the normal preacher, so my name is Josh Quera, if you don't remember, and I am Next Gen and Assimilation Pastor. I forgot I had a new title. So Next Gen and Assimilation, and if you could figure out what that means and tell me, that'd be really good. No. <laughs> what that means is I work with college students, and I get to work with young adults as well as kind of being the staff lead over our serve teams and our connect groups. And so if you want to learn how to be involved in the life at FBC a little bit more, come flag me down. Uh, sometime after the service today, you see me in the comments, you can talk to me about that whenever. So we're going to dig into this message today, and um, there was this guy, his name was A.W. Tozer, and you may not know who that is, you may not even care who that is, but he had something really important to say, and he said this, what comes to mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. And if it's the most important thing about you, then we have to have a view of God that matches up with his reality. And so that's what we're going to try to do here today, is we're going to go to the scriptures, which is really God's clear showing of us. And even if you were to boil that down, God showing us in scripture is most clear in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take a look at a passage today um, that's commonly called the prodigal son. And I think that's a little bit of a misnomer, if I could be honest, and because and, I think that's actually a, really a story about God. It shows us something about God and who he is. And so when we come to scripture, we see time and time again that God is not just uh, worthy of our praise and of our adoration, but he is actually trustworthy of giving us, uh, giving him our all. And this passage just reiterates that again and again. So it's called commonly the prodigal son. I would like to submit, and I've titled my message today, A Tale of Two Sons. And it's in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. If you have your Bibles or smart devices, you can turn there. We're not going to read it verse by verse per se, so I'd encourage you, sometime today, this afternoon, maybe during halftime or whatever, read this passage sometime this week and kind of just digest it and maybe read it a couple times because it's that good. In fact, another author and pastor had to say this, had this to say about it, rather, that if the gospel were a lake, that this story of the prodigal son would be the point of that lake that's the clearest, in which we could see all the way down into the depth of the bottom. It's a real flowery way of saying that this passage is important in our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's going to be really important for us to understand what God is trying to teach us in this passage. And if I were to sum this up, the thing I would want you to walk away from here remembering, not just knowing, like we know facts about our favorite football team, but actually living it out experientially, it was this, that God's heart, the center of who he is, is to move towards us in love and to have a good relationship with us in Jesus. So, but as we'll see, we don't always understand that well as people. Sometimes we get it wrong. And uh, many in Jesus' day also didn't understand that well, and many of them got it wrong as well. And if you were to look up a Wikipedia page of those that just got it wrong about Jesus, the Pharisees would have had their picture front and center, right? And here, at the beginning of this chapter, Luke 15, we see the Pharisees getting it wrong again about Jesus. And they were complaining against them, amongst themselves, kind of just, just venting, just kind of mumbling amongst each other and saying, like, they couldn't imagine that Jesus would do this, that a religious leader like Jesus claimed to be would be doing what he's doing. And what was he doing exactly? 
Well, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. He was receiving them and eating with them. So you can imagine that there was this house and Jesus was eating with these people that were called sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees were strolling by and they saw into the house and they just started complaining to Jesus about what he was doing. To understand this a little bit better, we need to understand who those in the camp of sinners and tax collectors are. And so sinners would be kind of just this word reserved for the worst of the worst in the minds of the Jewish people, the worst of the worst of sinners. And tax collectors, they were um, more than just an IRS agent. They were Benedict Arnold's. They were traitors to the Jewish nation. They were serving the Roman Empire, collecting taxes to fund their oppressive regime. And they would probably oftentimes skin, skim off a little bit off the top to line their pockets. So these are the types of people that in this moment Jesus was attracting to himself, that he was eating with. And the Pharisees, who thought that they were in the kingdom of God because of their strict adherence to the Jewish law and the several hundred other laws that they kind of added to it, right? It just didn't make sense. They were shocked that God's kingdom would include people like these. So Jesus told a series of three stories to illustrate the fact that he would explicitly say later on that the Son of Man, that he, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. So these are the parables, uh, somewhat famous, especially if you've been around church for a while. It's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. And then finally, Jesus, at the, the climax of these three stories, the apex, the parable of the lost son, or as I might call it, the lost sons. So as we'll see, um, Jesus begins this story in verse 11 by saying there was a man who had two sons. And this is why I think maybe a better name for this story would be the tale of two lost sons is because Jesus himself begins this story by saying a man had two sons. And as we'll see, these two sons kind of represent the two camps present at that day. See, on one side, you had the camp that we could call the sinners and tax collectors, and they're going to be represented by the younger son, and really all of us at some point in our lives. And then you had on the other side, the other camp that would be represented um, by the older brother, the Pharisees, that were listening in on this story. So Jesus kind of sets the table for us with that opening line, a man had two sons. So with that in mind, I think we can understand this story as a story in two episodes. A story in two episodes. So let's begin. In episode one, I've titled it The Path of Self-Seeking Discovery. And this is the path that the younger son takes. And in scene one, we see the younger son's rebellion. The younger son's rebellion. You can kind of follow along in your scriptures if you like. But the story begins with the younger of the two sons coming to the father and saying, Father, give me my share of the estate. Literally, give me the inheritance that would be mine when you're dead. You know, I really don't care about you. I really just care about your things. Give me what's mine when you're dead. And the weight of this has some impact on us in, uh, in 2021 America. Like, you would never talk to your father or mother that way, hopefully. Or you wouldn't like your son or daughter to talk to your, you this way. This has some weight. This, this has some gravity to it. But how much more would it have had in the Jewish culture that was a patristic culture? And the male of the house would have been held in high value and high esteem. They were the ones to be honored. And here, the younger son is coming to his father and saying, I wish you were as dead. You, you were as good as dead to me. Only give me what's going to be mine. 
So the younger son, this sets him off on this quest of trying anything and everything that the world promises will fill the, uh, the wholeness and this, this, this craving that he has for fulfillment. And he wanted on this path the father to fund this venture for him. But this was more than just a financial transaction. We have to understand that this was more than just a financial transaction. This was a severing of a relational tie to his father. And this was not because of anything that the father had done. In fact, in spite of it, he had provided for his son, place to stay, food to eat, job even. But the son was making moves to distance himself from the father. And the hearers of this story, especially those in the Pharisee camp, were going to be shocked from time to time. There's a lot of plot twists in this story. It did not play out the way that they thought they should. So they no doubt in this moment expected the father to kind of take his son to task. Like he had every right to do that. They no doubt expected the father to punish his son in this moment. But what happens is the father takes the property, he divides it. In the culture, there would have been a two-third share going to the older brother. And so the younger brother gets one-third share of his father's property. And he, he gives it to him. He gives him what he's requested. And so in love, the father does this. So sometimes we should not be excited. Sometimes when God gives us exactly what we want, honestly, we're nearsighted creatures. We don't play the long game like God does. But he also sometimes gives us the freedom to choose things. But that's not always a good thing. It's been said that hell can be described as God eventually giving people over to what they wanted all along which is a life free from relationship with him and free from his rule as Lord. It's not always a good thing. It's not going to be good for this younger son. In fact, there was a financial cost for the father, but there was also a relational cost. Remember I said he severed this tie to his father. And it would lead this younger son down a path that he thought would lead to freedom, but would actually lead to more enslavement, more chains. And that leads us to scene two, which is the younger son's reckless living. So having had his inheritance given to him now, the younger son gathers everything, and Jesus tells a story. He moves to far away land, a distant country. And again, not just signifying a change in geographic location and address, but the relational distance that he is putting between him and the father. It was a far away land. And there, he tried any and everything he wanted to because he, he had some wealth, and he did. And he squandered it, literally threw it away on what Jesus calls wild living. It's the kind of stuff that make HBO movie producers kind of blush. Wild living. And so I see this kind of thing kind of sometimes play out doing college ministry um, where students come to NMSU and they have, for the first time in their lives maybe, some freedom from control of their parents and of their household. Someone's not standing over them saying, you go to class right now, you go to work. Remember, we're going to go to church on Sunday, like read your scriptures, pray. No one's doing that for them. So the first time they taste a little bit of that freedom. And sometimes they'll use it for negative means and it'll end in destruction. But other times it's positive, especially if you're coming from a country where you're kind of closed off to the gospel. That freedom actually allows for the gospel to break through in your life. It's not always a negative thing for students, but for this younger son, it was a negative thing. 
So he divides the property. He gives it to him. He's moved off. And if you could imagine for a second just kind of the worst sinful things he could do, he probably did them. He probably went further than he ever thought he would go and made decisions that he never thought he could make in that faraway land. But the problem with sin is that it wrecks everything. It wrecks not just his relationship to the Father, but it wrecks our relationship to ourselves and to others. And this was true of the younger son. He had spent everything. He was financially impoverished. But there's actually more poverties than just financial poverty. He was relationally and spiritually bankrupt. Jesus tells a story. He didn't have anyone to turn to in this moment. And what's worse, a famine came on the land. There was no food to be had. And so he did what he had to do, having spent everything, having no friends that were there originally. They all left when the money ran out. He got a job, but the only job that was available in the time of famine was to be hired by a pig farmer. And if you know anything about Judaism, it's that the pigs are considered unclean. Not just because they kind of like wallow in the muckety-muck, but they were considered like ceremony, ceremonially, religiously unclean. And so for him to get a job as a pig farmer, Jesus is illustrating that the son had come to the lowest part of his life. He was lower than low, and he was starving. He didn't have anyone to give him anything. He longed to fill his stomach with the pig food that he was feeding the pigs. That's low. And if we could pause for a second and kind of check in with the original audience, those original hearers of this story, remember the camp of the Pharisees and the camp of the sinners and tax collectors? The crowd outside of that house today, those Pharisees probably would have been thinking um, happy thoughts at that moment, maybe. They were probably feeling pretty good about themselves. They were saying probably things amongst themselves like, serves him right. He disobeyed his father. Finally, he's getting what he deserves. The dad didn't do it, but circumstances did. You disobey, you end up eating pig food, they would have said. And if a Pharisee was telling this story, perhaps he would have just ended it right there. With the moral being, don't misbehave, guys. Always obey your father. Do the right thing always, or else you'll end up eating pig food. But that's not good news, and Jesus is actually all about good news. So Jesus, telling the story, continues. And that leads us to scene three where the younger son returns. And then we see in verse 17, Jesus opens up with this. He says, when he, talking about the younger son, came to his senses. Literally, a change of mind happened in the younger son. It's a Hebrew phrase that would have meant he repented. He was going one way, one direction, down the path of self-seeking discovery, and he had a change of mind. That change of mind happened. I imagine as like maybe he was getting that pod and he's like, man, I'm so hungry. My stomach's grumbling. And he brings it to his mouth and he smells it. And he's like, wait a minute, what am I doing? And then he remembered that like, okay, even the hired servants in my father's house, they have things to eat. In fact, I remember oftentimes they would take the leftovers and they would fill the fridges in their homes with what my father had given them. So he concocts this plan that he's going to return to the father But he understands that he has severed that relational tie as a son. He can't go back as a son. He has no claim on his sonship. So he concocts this plan that he is going to be a hired servant himself. That maybe, just maybe, if he got the right words together and that he caught his father on a good day, 
that his father would welcome him back, not as a son, but as a hired servant. So he wrote this script in his mind. You can find it in the scriptures in 18 and 19, verse 18 and 19. He says, Father, so this is his script he's rehearsing. I've sinned against heaven, which is really a standing for God. I've sinned against God, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So this is his, his ploy. He's going to go back to the Father, and he's going to plead with him. Maybe, just maybe, he could become a hired servant. He understands that he can't be a son anymore, that that ship has sailed. But maybe he could be a hired servant. If he said the right things, if he ha- was contrite enough, if he caught the father on a good day. And so he got up and from that distant country walked back to his father's home. And I imagine him just repeating that over and over on that path, just memorizing it. Father, I've sinned against you and before heaven. Like, like make me one of your hired servants. And he's just repeating that over and over. But what we see is, is not a judgment from the father. In fact, what we see is the father's great love for the younger son. So again, if we could check in with our original audience for a second, they're probably thinking one of two things. Those in the camp of sinners and tax collectors were probably relating greatly to the younger son. Maybe uh, having brought to mind just uh, what they had done that past weekend, how they had crossed the lines that they never thought they could cross, how they made decisions, uh, uh, the sinful decisions that they never thought that they would make when they were younger, and how they went further than they never thought they could. Or maybe, perhaps, they were thinking about the family or the friends who had seemingly abandoned them because of their life choices. Uh, no doubt, those in, inside the house were looking outside and seeing the Pharisees and just their judgmental, just self-righteous faces just emanating self-righteous judgment to them. And those in the Pharisees' camp, no doubt they were thinking, this is it. This is it. Third time's a charm. This is where the younger son faces punishment from his father. He has every legal and religious right to beat, to disown, and maybe even kill his son in this moment. So this is it. They're thinking, come on, Jesus. Break out that switch. Break out that chancla, whatever. (laughs) depending on where your ethnical heritage is. Anyways, all right, so break it out. This is that time to punish the younger son. This is it, the Pharisees are saying. Come on, Jesus, bring it. But what happens is we see in verse 20, but while he, the younger son, was still far off, the father saw him and felt rage. No, not even righteous indignation. No, he felt compassion for his son. And he ran. Like, we, again, we don't get this, but in that culture for him, he was an older, landowning, kind of Gentile person. He wouldn't run often. He ran to his son, and he embraced him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Like, are you kidding me? The Pharisees probably were like, this is a terrible story. <laughs> and then the younger son begins his speech, the one that he had rehearsed. Father, I've sinned against you, but sin against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father kind of cuts him off, right? He doesn't even get to the part of the hired servant. 
The father's like, yeah, 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 that's good. And he's probably got his arms around him. He's good, he's good. And, but like you over there, your hired servant, come here. This guy, he's been working with pigs. He stinks. We need to get him that new robe. Get that new robe I've been saving. And, and you know what? The, the ring that's mine that signifies sonship, bring that. And then, then the shoes, those new shoes that I bought that I haven't even worn, bring those. And you know what else? We'll kind of just tie this all together. Let's get that fattened calf that we've been saving for Christmas. And they wouldn't have celebrated Christmas. Jesus, yeah. A, all right, but the, that, that calf that we've been saving for that celebration, right? Get that. Break out the smoker. We're going to have a barbecue because this son of mine that was dead is alive. And he was lost, but he's found now. All right? And this is what he does. And there would have been a gigantic party. And they no doubt would have invited the neighborhood for this block party. And this was a huge, huge ordeal. And there would have been food, good food. And there would have been drink, really good grape juice. Because we're Baptists in No doubt it was grape juice. And there would have been dancing. I mean, interpretive movements, like, what do you, what, I don't know. And there would have been music, loud music, loud dancing. In fact, it got really loud in there. It got so loud that Jesus tells the story. He continues. And that the older son, who was working a field next door, heard the music. But not just the music, he heard the dancing. Like, how loud do you have to be dancing to hear it from the field next door? They were having a huge celebration. So the older son, this is where he comes into the story. He was in another field next door working, and he heard the music and the dancing, which is crazy, but he heard it, and so he called one of his father's hired servants close. He's like, what's going on? What are you guys doing? It's not Christmas. Why are you celebrating like this? And the hired servant says, your, your brother, you don't know? Your brother who was gone, he was as good as dead. He's back home. He's safe and sound. He was lost, but he is found. And so that rhymed unintentional. <laughs> so he's like, you should come. Like, you should come to this party. What are you doing working in the field? You should come. But the brother didn't. He should have rejoiced, but the older brother did it. He should have been the one like the father who ran into that party and embraced his brother, who was as good as dead, but he's alive. But he didn't. And uh, he didn't rejoice when it was appropriate. Roll credits on episode one. That's the end. And he, Jesus continues his story with episode two. I've titled The Path of Self-Righteous Performance. Path of Self-Righteous Performance. And here, the one and only scene we see is the older son's rebellion. In scene one, the older son's rebellion. So when we first meet the older son, he's out in the field working. And on the surface, that seems pretty good. It seems right that he should be working for his father, right? Well, maybe not, because he had a duty. He had an obligation to the younger son to be, he should have been the one out searching for him, like night and day looking for him in that distant land until he found him. And then when he found him, pleading with him to come back to dad, make it right. What are you doing? Like that was his responsibility as the older son. But here he is planting corn. Because if you're relying on your hard work, in your performance to get something from your father, you're never going to miss a day's work and rest will seem like a liability rather than a gift. 
And the irony in the older son's response is that he should have been celebrating with them. And he wasn't. Jesus tells the story he was angry and he refused to go in. See, the older son, his relationship to his father was really more of a business partnership. It's one where in the older son's mind, he had a unilateral contract which really said, I'll do this for you, father, but you got to do something for me. And it's the same attitude that many of the Pharisees in Jesus' day had. And it's unfortunately the same attitude that many of us in church today have. It says this, I'll do A, B, and C for you, God, as long as you do fill in the blank for me. And be aware, this is not just reserved for the churches that preach, so to speak, prosperity gospel. This is for us too. We need to learn something from this. And it becomes clear that the, fa- uh, the older brother has this in mind all along, that this is a deep-rooted issue. In verse 29, he says to the father who had come out to plead with him, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In the older brother's mind, his motivation or his attitude surrounding serving the father was to get things from the father. I did all this, and you never gave me anything. And it, it kind of just solidifies even more into a cynical attitude when he says, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? kind of just feel that disdain he feels towards his older brother. He can't even bring himself to call his brother his brother. You catch that? He says, this son of yours, dad. He's not my brother anymore. This son of yours and who has devoured your property. And we can probably be pretty sure the older brother was not concerned about the father's property. He was concerned with his share that had gotten split up when the younger brother left, who now returned, and now that smaller portion got split up again. So his view, the older brother's view of how his relationship would work with the father had led him, the older brother, down this path of self-righteous performance self-righteous performance. And that path led to a resentment. He had a resentment towards his father and towards his younger brother. And as well as he had a bitterness and angst and a cynical attitude. Like, did you catch that? The older brother did not celebrate when it was appropriate. He had become so cynical and hardened against this. And it led to an enslavement of duty rather than a delight in relational closeness to his father. And all of this, this path of self-righteous performance eventually led to, we don't know. Jesus actually ends this story there. He ends it before we know what happens to the older brother. Maybe he came inside to celebrate. Maybe he didn't. But Jesus ends the story there. And I'd say that cliffhanger, though, is actually pretty telling of what Jesus is trying to do. One of the things in this story He is leaving it intentionally vague for the Pharisees listening. In essence, he's saying it's up to you guys. Ball's in your court. Are you going to keep up with this charade of self-righteous performance? Or are you going to come home and celebrate with us? Like these people, they were lost, but they're found. Are you going to join in on that celebration? Are you going to stay down that path? And even though the ending's a little ambiguous for us, we can be sure of one thing. Just like the love that the father had for the younger son. 
we can be sure of that the father has great love for the older son. He has great love for the older son. God is not a Pharisee towards Pharisees. He does not act in the same way that the older brother does. In fact, what we see the father in this parable, in this story do time and time again is to make moves, to intentional moves towards his sons to restore them in relationship. He is the one who's initiating that. He's moving towards his kids in love to fix what is broken. In verse 28, we see that his father, the older brother's father, came out and entreated. He pleaded with him, come home, come home. The father wants the older son to return as much as the younger son. His love for one does not dwarf the other. In fact, remember this, that God, his heart is to move towards us in love, whoever we are, younger or older sons, in order that we might have a good relationship in Jesus Christ. That's who God is. That's at the very core of who he is. His OS, his operating system is to do so. Like, I understand it. God doesn't sleep, so don't hear me say that God sleeps. But if he were to sleep, the only thing on his mind would be, how do I move towards sinners in love? And when he woke up, that would be the same thing. How do I move towards sinners in love? That's who he is at the heart, the center of who he is. And he does this for his honor and glory, as we just sung about. So I don't know where you are. Maybe you hearing this story today were relating greatly to the younger brother, the attitude that he had, where he was living a life of open sin, where he had cut ties with with church and family that he grew up in, that he was seeking fulfillment in created things rather than the creator, where self-actualization of himself was Lord and living his truth was the gospel. Maybe you are sitting there angsty, rebellious, critical of organized religion, and cynical. Maybe you're a slave to your appetites. Maybe you have neither right actions nor right attitude or motivations. Or maybe you're more like me, who honestly, unfortunately, sometimes I relate more to the older brother, to the older son. And maybe you value your religious performance over a relationship to God. Maybe you're approximate to church life while being far from God and others relationally in love. Maybe you're living a life where performance is Lord and law is the gospel. Maybe you're seeking fulfillment in appearing obedient rather than in closeness and belonging to God. Maybe you have an attitude that's judgmental, self-righteous. Maybe there's a nice exterior and a rotten interior. Maybe you're critical of younger brothers. Maybe you're a slave to obedience and you might have the right actions, but you have the wrong attitude and the wrong motivations. So my invitation for you and for me would be today to allow God's spirit to critique us in which attitude, what is our drift? We all have a drift towards one or the other. Maybe you're an older brother who dabbles in a little bit of younger brother behavior because the weight of perfection is just crushing and you think maybe if I just dabble in a little sin over here, I'll find relief. Or maybe you're a younger son who's like, I'm ready to come home. I feel God initiating toward me in love and I'm ready to come home by giving my life to him in repentance. 
wherever you find yourself, I ask in this moment as we pray that um, you would just allow God to work in your lives. And you can come and talk to us down here at the front if you need prayer, or you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to confess your sin as an older brother. We can do that as well. Let's pray. God, I am grateful. I'm floored by your uh, just great love for us, that your attitude isn't one of uh, judgment, uh, that you have provided a way out in Jesus. Thank you that you, Jesus, are that true and perfect older brother who came and sought us out. We love you, and we pray this in uh, Jesus' name. Amen.